Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Your times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, December 10th, 2012, and this is episode 1037 of the Survival Podcast. It's going to be a good one today because it's Monday, and on Monday I take your emails and your comments, questions, concerns, ideas, thoughts, uh, emails of articles that you've read or videos you've watched or anything like that that have come into my email address. If you ever want to email me, write this down. The email address is really, really complex. It's jack at the survivalpodcast.com. It's jack at the survivalpodcast.com. The Survival Podcast, not just Survival Podcast, the or the, depending on what part of the country you're from, whether you say the or the is uh, pretty regional. But there you go. That is my real address. If you send an email to that address, I will get it, uh, assuming it doesn't get eaten by the spam monster or something like that. Uh, if you want to be on a show like this, the format to use is put article for Jack or sub, uh, comment for Jack or question for Jack or video for Jack or something like that in the subject line. But you get the formula, a single word, then the word for, and then the word Jack. If you do that, you'll go into a special folder that will make sure you get you know, sorted through for the queue. I get hundreds of emails a day. I cannot possibly get everything on the air, but I do read every email. I don't even respond to every email anymore because I can't due to uh, time limits, but I do at least scan the emails. best way to make sure I read what your point is, make your point in the first two sentences. I'll get your point. Um, if you don't do that, uh, a lot of you guys write me these really heartfelt, long letters, and some days I just can't read them, you know, but if you make your point in the front, I might read the details that follow. That's for questions, that's personal email, everything. And again, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, that is my personal email. It's not a special email just for the show. It doesn't go to anybody to screen it out for me. I do read it all, every bit of it, every single bit, I promise you. All right, and it's the best way to get a hold of me. Do not message me on the forum or Facebook and expect to hear back from me. Email is the preferred method of communication. Just trying to help you guys out here. Before we get into your feedback this week, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one is The Berkey Guy, or The Berkey Guy, depending on where you're from, I guess. But he calls himself The, so we're going to call him The Berkey Guy, Jeff Gleason. Now, what are you going to get from Jeff Gleason, The Berkey Guy? Shocking as it might be. You can have Berkey water filtration systems. That's the main thing he sells at his website, which is at www.directive21.com. Again, directive21.com. Go there and check it out. I'll tell you, and you might think to yourself, you know what? I know Berkey's a good product, and I've been meaning to get a water filtration system, or maybe I'm going to buy one for somebody this year. But why go to the Berkey guy? Why not just go to anybody else? I mean, you can get Berkey's from lots of people. Well, let me put it to you this way. He's the Berkey guy. Why would you go to the non-Berkey guy to get a Berkey? Seriously, Jeff's taking good care of this audience for a long time and always make things, makes things right whenever anything goes wrong because sometimes things do. That's why you're going to go to the Berkey guy. He's got other great items for your prepping too. Again, directive21.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants, Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors are always the perpetual student and teacher. Always taking new courses every year themselves. That way they're on the cutting edge and able to help you become Become more proficient in your use of firearms for anything from putting food on the table to defending your life or the lives of others. 
If you are going to carry a handgun in this day and age, it behooves you to have specialized training. I'd say not just this day and age, but any time. A lot of folks get a gun and it becomes a dangerous thing for them. Not because they're going to be irresponsible or reckless for it, but as soon as they end up with that gun and enough, uh, you know, whatever they require to carry it in their state, they become convinced that they're invincible and they'll always be okay. And they become overly confident and they don't realize the level of stress that can go on in a situation where you actually have to draw that weapon and possibly use it. Training is the only way to counter that. It's the only way and it's something that all of us who carry should have multiple times in our lives good quality professional training. You can't do better than Fortress Defense Consultants and Frank Sharp Jr. Um, also, I've heard from a lot of ladies that have gone up there and taken that course that were a little bit intimidated by it, that if you're a female and you're looking for a great place to take some training, uh, the exact words used by two different female students, you could not be in better hands. So ladies, take it from, you know, other ladies. I think you guys trust each other maybe more than you trust us guys, and maybe for good reason. Uh, next up, hey, guess what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this, but 13skills.com's rocking. I'm gonna actually do this in the main body of the day show, cause I gotta tell you something really cool that happened with us over the weekend. Uh, but also check out TSP Gear and TSPCopper.com. We've got some great stuff there. And consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And you help support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like paramedics. If you email me with service discount in the subject line before you join, not after, and you tell me who you are and what you're doing, I will give you a service discount to thank you for your service. Again, that's prior military, prior and active, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like paramedics. I've heard from several people that say, I work in the corrections institution as a correctional officer. Is that law enforcement? You bet your ass it is. Don't even ask. Just tell me and I'll take care of you and hook you up with a discount. That's a job uh, that's probably a hell of a lot more dangerous and a hell of a lot tougher in some ways than what a lot of guys do out on the street. All right, um, let's go ahead and get into the main topics today. Let's start out with uh, 13skills.com. It's something really cool that happened. So we wake up Sunday morning, and there's like a bazillion new skills to approve in members. And the traffic's going like crazy on Sunday morning. And we're wondering, well, what's going on, man? Did everybody wake up on Sunday instead of going to church decide to set up a profile? Well, what happened was longtime listener, longtime community member David Galloway, who is also a contributor to lifehacker.com, Posted about us on Lifehacker. We got picked up over there. And uh, I think we added about, I don't know, at least a 1,000 members yesterday. And most of them out of that are from the Lifehacker community and not directly affiliated with the Survival Podcast. So we just got that wider net uh, that we were hoping for with 13 Skills. And hopefully that will keep coming. More and more stuff's coming in every day to 13 Skills. And I want you guys to know that are getting involved with it, that are saying, like, we're, we're, well, what about adding this feature and function and that feature and function and, you know, cleaning up some stuff as far as redundancy in the skill sets. We're working on it. We're doing the best we can. Dorothy's like, I have so much work to do with moving, and now i got to do this. So one thing we could use, if we have some 13 Skills users out there, um, especially if I like know who you are already that would be interested in helping out as a moderator, just approving members and keeping an eye on things and having the ability to ban any abusive members. I'd be interested in hearing from you. Just email me with 13 skills moderator and I don't need a bunch, maybe half a dozen. So uh, I might not take everybody that suggests, but tell me who you are. And if you've been on our forum or something like that, we have a track record. I know who I'm you know, giving this authority to because you're going to need an orientation because there's some things you could touch because we don't have levels of moderators like we do in forums, and there's some things you can touch you need to not touch because you could mess some stuff up. 
So it would be a very trusted position. So I need to at least have some way to kind of check out who you are and that you've been around a while. Uh, but I certainly could use some help there. But, hey, Dave, over at uh, Lifehacker, thank you. Uh, we're going to figure out some stuff to send you to thank you for that. What I want to tell you right now, and I'm not going to put out the details till tomorrow. We're still figuring out because we're going through all this stuff while we're moving. We're finding all kinds of cool stuff we got for gear reviews that's redundant for us, that's redundant beyond the needs of our redundancy. And we're going to put together a great big package of cool stuff. And we're going to run a blog contest, let's say this week and next week. And whoever does the most awesome blog post about 13skills.com, links to it, talk about your own profile, explain the mission, whoever does the best job with that, we're going to give all this stuff to. And we'll give a little bit of stuff to a few other people. Uh, so start thinking about your blog post now. I wouldn't go do it yet because all the details are going to come out tomorrow about like what to do, how to do it, and what have you. But we'll run that for two weeks. And I mean, we'll give away, like the grand prize in this is going to be like, 200, maybe 300 or more dollars worth of gear that we're going to give away. One thing we're all we're going to give away is a full Kelly kettle set, uh, set Kelly kettle set, the kettle, the cooker, all the accessories, a full Kelly kettle set. Uh, I have that to uh, to give away. Um, an Emberlet stove will be, so those will be two stove products. One of um, uh, Lee Reich's books on fruit, we haven't decided which book yet, but, I mean, you know, right there you're looking at $20, $50, $100, $200. And we're going to put some more stuff in there. Full set of stickers to all the new stickers in the gear shop. Some of the old patches, the old school TSP patches, that'll be in there. Some keychains maybe, some stuff we've been finding that we didn't realize we had. bunch of stuff uh, we'll be giving away in the TSP blog contest. So, Uh, 13 Skills Rockin', please come join us. And remember, if you've already done something, try to set more goals for next year. Try to set something that's going to take you more than a day to do. Try to challenge yourself with this. That's what this is all about, going to a new level. There's no reason you can't have certain skills that have five or six or seven or more goals. In fact, what we'll do when we run this, um, this blog contest, we'll also run a profile contest. Who can challenge themselves the most? Who's most creative with setting their goals? So we'll run two contests. We've got plenty of stuff that we need to clean out before this move. So that's coming for bloggers. And if you're not a blogger, you're just doing it on 13 Skills, hey, man, we'll, we'll, we'll run something for you guys, too. That's a, that's a good idea I just had. All right, next up on contests. Um, I'm not going to give out the details on the air because it'll just take too much time, and I want to get into your questions now. Uh, but I'm going to give away the, the, the brief details here. Um, I'm going to be speaking at the Liberty Forum in February in New Hampshire for the uh, Free State Project. How about this? One of you guys gets to win a um, VIP ticket. And that means you get into everything, every dinner, every event, everything up there. And you get to have dinner on Saturday night with myself and Dorothy on a VIP table during the keynote speech. Um, then... Uh, there'll be a winner that'll get a, like a top level, t I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's almost all of that, including having dinner with us. And somebody else will just win a regular ticket. And the way this is going to work is cool. Um, you pick a charity of your choice, you donate 10 bucks to them, and all that Liberty Forum is asking that if they were somebody you were going to donate to anyway, you donate at least an additional 10 bucks, you send some information to Liberty Forum, they put you in a drawing, and three people win a prize. Just for, and you don't have to give it to them. They don't even want it, right? You can give it to anybody, any charity, any group that you choose to. And it doesn't even have to be a 501c. If it's a, something you see as a worthy cause and you want to donate 10 bucks to it, 
that's fine. Again, all they're asking is that it be $10 over what you would have done if we didn't run the contest, and that's on your honor. Those are great guys up there, and I can't wait to meet a few of you guys, have dinner with you, and we will spend some time. They said in the write-up that I'll put out, says you might cook up with uh, Jack at the hotel bar. Jack will spend a lot of time in the hotel bar, and anybody that wants to come hang out with us will be welcome to do so. So love to see some of you guys there. So that's another cool contest that we have, and thanks to the Liberty Forum for doing that. So let's get in now to your feedback. I know it was long for sort of an intro section, but uh, uh, there's some cool stuff that I wanted you guys to know about. And the 13 skills thing, we're blown away. Uh, over 2,500 members in about a week and over 25,000 goals set. How awesome is that? Let's uh, go ahead and take that first email today. Let's take one here on uh, currency revaluation, national debt crisis, that type of thing, since we talk about it all the time. And if this guy has a question about it, odds are that many of you do as well. This is Dave. Dave says, I have a question for you about monetary rebasement. In the event that the U.S. has a currency crisis and there is some sort of revaluation of the dollar, such that its face value would buy a whole lot less after rebasement, what, if anything, do you think would happen with institutionally held debt? That means debt that's owed to, let's say, a bank or a corporation through a corporate bond is what he's talking about there. I've always thought that in the event of a debasing of the dollar, there was some sort of solace that my cash reserves would always be good to pay debt owed, such as a mortgage. So while one might have held a $100,000 mortgage and one had a like amount in the bank, you could theoretically use that money to pay off a house loan while on the street, the same amount may only get you a year's worth of rent, say, in the new currency value. But I have wondered recently if the banks would allow such a thing to happen, to have loaned out more valuable money and be repaid with less valuable currency. I was wondering, do you think that there would be such a thing as a debt rebasement as well to protect the banks from losing their butts? So if the currency's purchasing power were cut in half, would they not try to seek governmental sanction to increase the amount of the dollar value the debt's held to compensate? Curious as to your thoughts would be on this. Perhaps I'm just paranoid. I've paid off my mortgage, and my friends have said, that's crazy, inflation is good for your debts. Tell them you'll loan them money at 6% interest, and they can pay you every month and consider it good. How, how about that then? Uh, freaking people. I countered that uh, a house is always going to be worth a house while the dollars I paid it off in uh, may not. Thanks much for your podcast. I've awakened, I've been awakened over the last two years, Dave. All right, so look, here's the thing. If anybody tells you this is exactly how it'll happen or exactly how it'll work out, you're, t you're, you're dealing with a person who's a fool, a liar, or both. Because you can't possibly know exactly how this will work out. What we do know is that they're going to have to do this at some point. The only way to hit the reset button, once you go into a runaway economy to where there's no catching up to it, and we're rapidly approaching that, the interest on the debt will soon be the largest expense in government other than Social Security and the Department of Defense and may soon be larger than that because to service it, those two may have to be drastically cut or curtailed to service the interest on the debt. And at that point, it's game over. The, 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 a revaluation has got to occur at that point. And, the, and when your question is, would the new money buy less than the old money? The answer is absolutely, because here's the secret, that's the only reason to do it. So if you have $22 trillion worth of debt as a nation, at the point you decide, I can't service this debt anymore. 
there's there's two ways you can address it. You can address it through default or rebasement. Those are the only two ways. Okay. If you were to cut the value of the money in half and print up the other hundred, you know, the other, you know, fifty percent of the total amount, you could effectively take your debt and drop it, even though the number won't go down, from being like servicing twenty-two trillion to taking it down and serving eleven trillion dollars. Just by cutting the value of the money in half, because as the nation itself issuing its own currency, even through a private bank like the Federal Reserve, you can just issue it. And issuing it will cut it. But if you just do the issue thing long enough, then you get Zimbabwe. Alright? So at some point you have to, you have to do a complete reset with a plan. And the plan would not be, we're gonna have 50% inflation in a day. Because that doesn't fool anybody or sucker anybody in or help get it done. The plan would be, we're going to create a 50% inflation curve, hide as much of it as possible for as long as possible, but do it as quickly as possible at the same time. It sounds crazy, but that would be the goal. To have something akin to 10% inflation a year for five years. While you have a heated economy that appears to be doing well, where even though the prices are going up really fast, people feel like they can do it, and try to retain the confidence in the new currency so that it doesn't run away to hyperinflation. That would be the goal. And to make people so confident in general that the new move was good for them long term, that they'll play ball with you. And the way you do that is by giving them a compelling story of what's going to anchor this currency. So if you tell them, well, now the currency is going to be backed by gold again, at least in some portion, and maybe real property, not mortgage debt, but actual property. That would be some sort of a commodity basket. It's going to be backed by gold, by silver, and the timber, oil, and gas reserves of the, the nation, along with the nation's actual holdings of real estate. That sounds pretty solid. And it's, it's actually not a bad way to build a currency. Because it's far more flexible than just a straight up gold standard, right? And it's far more indicative of a nation's wealth and far more useful in trading wealth within the nation or into other nations. So it's not a bad idea. A straight gold standard done the right way, not a bad idea. A gold and silver bimetallic standard done the right way. But the problem is that you're not going to get it done the right way. You're going to get controlled by the banks. So the banks are going to do what's in their best interest. Now, it's true. If I'm holding a mortgage and the value of money declines, right, then it is advantageous to me that I'm sitting in my home and I'm making a house payment today that you could only buy 25% of the home I have with. And that happens with normal inflation. If you go look at somebody that bought a house 25 years ago, they're in the last five years of their mortgage, and you ask them what their house payment is, especially apart from the tax portion of their house payment. And, and you looked at that and you said, could I buy anything close to what they have today? As long as it's a well-maintained, well-built home, the answer is no. It's, it seems insane. And, and, and inflation does favor the mortgage holder because you're holding an appreciating asset based on a depreciating currency. Not all debt works that way. So when people say, well, that works for credit card debt, and I'll know because you're holding a depreciating asset and a depreciating currency at the same time with nothing to leverage it against. So real property is about the only thing you can hold with debt that really works that way. And it doesn't always work that way because, no, property never goes, oh, wait a minute, that's not true, is it? 
And people say, well, that was very unusual and it never really was like that. Oh, 1980. 1979-1980. Thousands of real estate investors lost their ass. It's not like property never goes down in value. But the underlying value is always there and always, again, will sooner or later rectify itself against the currency. The reality is there's a lot of ways that they can do this. None of them will be good for the people in general. And the only way to protect yourself is to have as little debt as possible. It just never works. It's a pipe dream that holding the debt is a good idea. We've had people on the air, like Fernando Aguirre, that watched it happen in their own country, and it didn't work there. It didn't work anywhere. The only place it might work is with real property. And when you look at stuff like Weimar Germany, people that were holding real property did for fairly well. Here's the thing. Their goal is to continue the paradigm where the corporations are in charge, the government is a puppet, and the people are idiots. So exactly how they're going to pull this off, we don't know, but that will be the goal. And for whatever the loss is to be taken by Are they going to have little Jeopardy music in the background? Do, 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 do. Will the banks that are running the system and the corporations running the system allow the loss to be taken evenly across all parties, to be fair, A, by the banks and the corporate, or B, by the banks and the corporations, C, by the government, or D, by the people? Which one do you think it's going to be? So the only way to protect yourself is build real value into your life. And to be able to deal with whatever comes because we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. But we do know there's only one play to get out of the quicksand at the end. And that is a reset of the currency by some means. Uh, let's take another email. Here's an interesting question and it's one of the uh, big survivalist prepper myths as far as I'm concerned. Uh, this is from Dean. Dean said, previously I'd asked about selecting weapons based upon commonality of caliber, and you stated this was not as big of an advantage as I thought. Could you please expand on why having common calibers in your weapons is not a real advantage? Thanks, Dean. Okay, as long as we understand that I'm not saying not to have any weapons of common caliber, but, but here's what I'm talking about when I say common caliber, 45, 9mm, 223, 7.62, Uh, you know, uh, US NATO 762 or 76239, uh, the, the common stuff, the 22 long rifle, all the stuff that everybody has that's the easy stuff to get because everybody has it. And the belief is that there's two ways to look at this too when people ask the question. I don't remember the original question, so one can be I'm going to get a rifle, uh, a carbine in 9mm and a handgun in 9mm, so I have the same ammo in both of them. And that's an internal commonality of caliber. Or I'm going to buy a weapon that can shoot .223 and .556 and have that be my, you know, my small game hunting, you know, varmint rifle along with uh, an AR platform. Or I'm going to have, you know, a .308 rifle that can handle, you know, military and have that. Or just I'm going to standardize on that so that if the shit hits the fan and I need to barter for ammo, I have the greatest propensity to be able to find ammo like that. Um, here's the first issue with this. Number one, ammo ain't that expensive, and if you're that worried about having ammo, buy ammo for your guns and buy the guns that you like and buy the guns in the caliber, etc., that you feel do the best job for your needs. And don't worry about all this common caliber crap to a degree. I do think that everybody that's going to have a handgun should have at least one handgun in something like 9mm or 45. Pick one of the two 
And I, there is an availability uh, issue there and a commonality thing there. But stock ammo for it. And if you want to go out and buy a 38 or a 41 Magnum, go ahead. Buy ammo for it, though. All right? Let's keep going, and you'll see where I'm going with this. Shotgun, buy what, buy what works for you. But 20 and 12, greater availability of uh, ammo day-to-day. No crisis necessary. Just when you go into Walmart and you want turkey loads for your 12 or 20, you can always find them. Not so much with your 16. All right, so there's some stuff there. Um, and then, you know, with your center fires, you know, having a 308 or a 3006 is a great medium bore. Uh, does a lot. So there's, there's, oh, it's fine to have those. But if you're going beyond what you already have, and you're thinking, well, I want to make sure I stick with all these common calibers so my weapons use the same ammo and all, it's actually a disadvantage, okay? And let's look at it from the classic prepper, end of the world as we know it, doomsday scenario that's out there. Well, I'm going to have 9mm because that's the most common ammo, which means it will be the most hoarded and jealously guarded ammunition out there and, and may actually become the hardest to come by. Or in a true Mad Max, everybody's killing each other, might be the stuff that gets used up the most. And if you have a 9mm and it's available, that's great. But if you have multiple caliber weapons then whatever you can get your hands on, odds are something you have will be able to use it. So if I have, you know, five different calibers of rifle, and one of them is my common caliber, and the other four are different, and I need ammo, period. I just need something for one of these damn things. Do I have a greater opportunity to find ammo for one of them? And the answer is yes. Okay. Now, when it comes to the concept of a carbine and a handgun with the same caliber, um, the same cartridge, let's not even say caliber, say cartridge, a 9mm, um, you know, carbine and a 9mm handgun, I have a SIG 226. And I have a Keltec Sub 2000 that takes SIG 226 uh, magazines in 9mm. That's a great thing to carry in a kit. And we're actually looking to find a really cool kit bag. Because nobody wanted to make me one, and I think somebody did by accident. They were going to mark it in the gear shop just for that. It's cool. It has a lot of utility to it. But I would not make a decision only on that. I bought the Keltec Sub 2K because I liked the platform. Then I chose 9mm with SIG magazines because I have a SIG with 9mm magazines. If they didn't have, if I had a SIG and they didn't have a matching thing, and I still wanted the Keltec, I would have still bought it. And then I might have even went to, let's say, the Glock with the 40 to have variants. I might actually want the variants. Why? Because this is the, the insanity. There's people out there with like 10,000 rounds of ammo of a given caliber, and they're worried about running out. Whatever is in your head that makes you think that's the kind of thing we're heading for, get it out, because you're going to wind up in prison or dead, or both, if we end up in a real crisis and you take that approach, you'll be hanging from a tree if you think that's the way the world's going to work. Because if it does break down enough that you can get away with it for any length of time, you're dead. You're dead because people ain't going to stand for it. This whole everybody's going to be shooting like World War III, right? This, this myth, this fantasy that people live in, right? The only way something like that happens is you get hit with a earth gets hit with a comet that knocks everything out, but yet somehow doesn't you know kill ninety percent of us at the same time. These things like economic breakdown and all they're not going there. 
They're not going to result in this. You peak oil believers, this peak oil real? Sure, there's a finite amount of oil in the ground. How long is it going to take till we really see the repercussions of that? Probably longer than you and I think. Probably longer than I think, and I think it's longer than you. But even if it does, it's not going to result in Mad Max. If there's peak oil, where's Mad Max going to get? <laughs> Come on, you know? Um, so the common caliber thing, again, I'm not saying not to have weapons of common calibers. I'm not, what I'm saying is don't allow the unavailability of a particular platform with a certain caliber to prevent you from buying that platform. When I say platform, I mean the weapon itself. Or if you happen to be at a gun show, for instance, and you find a used gun and you're looking for a good bolt action gun and you find a really nice Remington Model 7 in .243 and it would be a great deer gun for you, don't hold up on the purchase because it's not a quote-unquote common caliber. Go out and buy a few boxes of it, okay, and put it aside with the weapon. And then you have greater functionality and availability and greater likelihood with the more variants of weapons and calibers you have that you'll be able to, if we get to the crazy stuff, that you'll be able to get a hold of something that works. You know, that doesn't mean don't, again, just so I'm not, because I know I'm going to hear it today, right? It doesn't mean don't go buy a 9mm handgun or a 45. Buy at least one of those. Have it. But then don't buy every dadgone handgun in the same caliber because, oh, I have to have common calibers. Come on, man. And if you think you're going to be running your own militia or something and handing out weapons, man, you've been watching too much TV. Let's take another one here. Okay, just when you thought the GMO was bad, how about having someone print a hamburger for you? Printing meat. Sounds crazy. I mean, no one would ever do such a thing. That's, that's, that's conspiracy talk. Well, this is on CNBC. Not really the home of a lot of conspiracy talk. Here's the headline. This comes from Kelly John Doe of the Gear Shop sent me this, and his headline, his uh, subject was, What Could Go Wrong? <laughs> Here's the headline of the article. Peter Thiel backs startup making 3D printed meat. Breakout Labs billionaire Peter Thiel's biotech foundation announced an eyebrow-raising investment in startup that makes 3D printed meat. Yes, really. Modern Meadow, based in Columbia, Missouri, will receive $350,000 to continue developing new meat and leather production technologies. The company engineers uh, tissues to create leather and edible meat in a process that eliminates many of the negative environmental effects associated with traditional livestock practices, according to a report by CNET. Quote, Modern Meadow is combining regenerative medicine with 3D printing to imagine an economic and compassionate solution to the global problem, said Lindy Fishburne, executive director of Breakout Labs, said this in a statement to the press. The biotech startup uses bioprinting technology that has, quote, been applied to build three-dimensional tissues and organ structures of specific architecture and functionality for purposes of regenerative medicine, end quote. According to the summary of the company's work submitted to the Department of Agriculture, medicine and agriculture, I'm going to tell you the truth here in a second. In layman's turn, the technology can be used animal stem cells to create what could be environmentally friendly alternative to traditional meat. The additional two grants were awarded to Bell Biosystems and Entopasis. Okay. Here's what's going on. These guys want to develop a technology in reality that would allow them to do something like this. Someone needs a heart. We don't have a heart donor. We could take stem cells of the proper donor genetics and then grow protein and print them a heart, stick it in their body, electrocute it a little bit and get it going. 
And the person has a new heart. And why can't we do this with a kidney? And why can't we do this with a liver? And in theory, anything's possible and maybe we could get there. But despite the fact they've been talking about stuff like this and scientific research uh, documentaries and things like that, oh, I'd say going back 15 years at least, maybe closer to 20, I've seen things like this from like Discovery and National Geographic that one day they'll be able to do this. It's a lot harder than they make it sound in that special little documentary that shows the little kid getting a new heart. But protein, we can grow protein and we can print something in the shape of a freaking T-bone. But it ain't going to taste like a T-bone, it ain't going to be a T-bone, and you probably don't want to eat it. But they want to tell you it's good for you and it'll help stop cow farts and lower the global temperature or some other nonsense. Rather than addressing the real problem with livestock, which is things like CAFOs, where animals are stacked shoulder to shoulder, standing in their own shit, and yes, I'm going to say it that way for those that don't like the vulgarity once in a while, because that actually illustrates what's going on. That's what your beef is doing for a couple of weeks while it's being fattened up. It's up to its knees and its own manure and shit. And then you're going to eat that. Right, and it's laced with E. coli, and you better cook it right, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum. And they used to make pink slime out of that, but when people found out what that was, it kind of went by the wayside, even though they're trying to bring it back. So instead of fixing that problem by understanding cows should be eating grass, and that we could take a lot of this place that we're growing corn and moving it to the cow and moving the cow and all this crap and just return it to the pasture, put the cow there and let the cow eat grass like it's supposed to, have little cows, and then eat those cows, we're going to print meat. Why? Because it's part of the global plan to completely control your food supply. Now, that might sound conspiratorial, but you give me another explanation. Okay, we've got genetically modified foods being sprayed with toxins, and they're genetically modified so we can spray them with toxins. They're feeding you that. They say it's generally recognized as safe and not to worry about it. Feed it to rats. It gives the rats liver and kidney disease and kills them dead. You take a cow, you feed the cow corn, which already should not be eating, but corn and then you feed it corn for 90 days and you look at its insides and there's a little bit of inflammation because corn is not cow food, grass is cow food, but it's moderately inflamed. You feed it the GMO corn and you look at it and the entire insides of this animal is completely red and inflamed and then we're eating that cow, we're eating that corn, what do you think it's doing to our insides? Maybe the same thing you would think, right? So that's all going on. Now they want to print meat. They already talked about laboratory meat. I had that on the show. They want to do genetically modified pig. So you're going to have GMO pork, actually modified pork. They want to do genetically modified salmon. That's going to be on the shelves in two years, according to the reports that we had a couple, maybe what, a couple of years ago. So, you know, it, was, it said four years, so we're two years away from that now. The concept here is that the universal need of mankind is food. And if you control food, you have unlimited wealth. These comp and the conspiracy theorists that are crazy say they're doing this stuff to kill you on purpose. And I tell you all the time, never attribute to malice what can be contributed to incompetence. Let me add to that. Never contribute to malice that which can be attributed to contempt. Never attribute that to malice what can be attributed to apathy. Okay? And what the, the intent here is actually is to make lots and lots of money. And they're not trying to kill you so they can make lots of money. They don't care if they kill you when they make lots of money. It's indifference. So, and they also, you know, they own the pharmaceutical companies. So if they make you sick and the pharmaceutical companies are in the business of keeping sick people alive versus curing illness, which we know they are. If you look at the medications being turned out by pharmaceutical companies today, they do not cure illness. 
They treat chronic illness created by the food supply and created by the pharmaceuticals themselves. I have a little snippet I need to get onto YouTube or whatever and play for you guys. It's from Shark Tank. It was a guy that had a product that you put these little things on your nose holes, right? And I don't know that I'd want to do it, and I probably wouldn't, but for people with chronic allergies and things like that, it was a pretty benign thing. And when you, you know, it sounded ridiculous, but when he, he put them on and you looked at them, unless you were like standing up, looking up his nose holes, you really didn't even notice them. He had a big contract already to get them into several Middle Eastern nations that have a lot of problems with dust because it was better than a mask or whatever. And uh, they said, why don't you take this to the pharmaceutical companies? And he said, why would we cure something for a dollar when we can treat it for 12 That came from a executive at a pharm major pharmaceutical corporation. Right? So they're in the business of treating chronic illness, and the food companies are in the business of creating chronic illness, and they're all owned by the same groups of people. And now one of them is going to come out and print meat and tell you it's good for you, and it fixes our global problem. Folks, wake up to reality. Wake up to reality. The way to fix the need for protein in our society and the abuse done to the animals that the protein comes from is to stop abusing the animals and stop abusing the systems that feed the animals. It's not to print a T-bone or a burger or a pork chop. It ain't going to work. It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to be good for you. It's just an asinine idea, and they're going to do it. And over time, the ick factor will decline, and people will think it's a great idea, and they'll really believe it's going to prevent polar bears from drowning. That's how they'll sell this thing to you, and you wonder why I think the whole damn thing is a scam. Let's take another one. All right, here's one we've heard versions of from other companies before. This is on uh, Greta... Uh, Van Susteren's uh, site on Fox Insider, uh, I think they call it Greta Wire or something like that. Yeah, Greta Wire. Um, this is from December 4th, 2012, so last week, about a week ago anyway. AutoZone employee fired after thwarting robbery and saving manager's life. Former AutoZone employee Devin McLean just went on the record at 10 p.m. Eastern time about the night he turned the tables on an armed robber. McLean and his manager were ready to close a Virginia AutoZone shop when a gunman burst in. While the suspect forced the manager to open the safe, McLean sneaked out, grabbed a gun from his truck, returned to the store, scared the robber off with a gun, saved his manager's life. But the corporate brass apparently wasn't pleased. McLean said the company fired him for violating their gun policy. What do you think about McLean's story? Should he have been fired or not? Post your thoughts. Um, you can post your thoughts on Greta Wire if you want to. I'm going to give you mine. AutoZone, you suck. You suck. You suck. I'm not a big believer in boycotts, but here's what I believe. Um, when you suck like this and you do something like this to a guy who, you know, did the right thing, did it within the bounds of the law, likely did save this guy's life. Because you know what? Let me tell you something. You freaking beanheads over there. So you get this through your thick damn skulls. Compliance doesn't work with criminals, thieves, and scumbags. Okay? You know what happens a lot of times in these types of things? The employees told, just comply and they'll give you whatever you want. And the guy opens the safe and gives him the money. And then the guy takes the gun and puts it to the back of the guy's head and kills him anyway. Don't tell me it doesn't happen. I know of it happening multiple 
freaking times. Here's another genius thing, because you understand this. The people that are going to take a gun and go to an auto zone and make somebody give them money are not exactly the people you find with, you know, Phi Beta Kappa or something like that, or graduating at the top of a class of Harvard. What I'm saying to you, since you don't get it, since you're clearly this stupid management of auto zone, okay, since you don't get it, is these people aren't smart. They're not rocket scientists. So they're stupid. So they think, well, I don't want to kill the guy. I just want to knock him out. You know what they do? They take that big old heavy cheap high point firearm that they've got to the back of the guy's head and they hit him behind the ear with it. I actually remember one report of a guy that got robbed at a meeting like a Craigslist scam type thing and the guy had him get down on the ground and he goes, don't shoot me, don't shoot me. He said, don't worry, I'm just going to knock you out. And he hit him in the head three times with a ball peen hammer. The guy survived with brain damage. You don't comply with these types of people unless you're using compliance to buy yourself an opportunity. Because in the end, just as many times as these people walk away and make good on their promise, if you just cooperate, I'll do what you want me to do, just as many times they don't. Because you can't trust a person to keep his word when he's got a gun in your face, you idiots. This guy's a hero. Okay, This Devin McLean is a hero. He should be treated like a hero. So here's what I would suggest that the folks from this audience do. If you want to call AutoZone and find a corporate number for them and let me know about it, I'll make it public. I'm sure it ain't that hard to find. You want to call them and tell them you think they're scum or whatever and tell them that what they did is, 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 is reprehensible, go ahead. They won't listen. They won't care. They won't care. They really won't. They're not going to give this guy his job back. The guy probably doesn't want his job back at this point. So I'm going to say this. If you live near where this guy lives in Virginia and you need an employee, Hire this guy. Give him a better job than the one he had. He's clearly someone that looks out after people and someone should be taken care of. And all I'm going to say is this. When I'm driving down the road and I need parts for my car or my truck, do you know what I've always noticed about auto parts stores? Whenever I see like a Pep Boys or uh, you know, Napa or anything like that in an auto zone, I never have actually been to a place where there's only one auto parts store within a couple blocks. It seems like they kind of occurring these little clumps around like mechanic shops and stuff like that that need to use them to get parts. So all I'm suggesting, you know, unless the only people that have the part that you need are AutoZone, you know, don't boycott and not have your car because of that. But whenever you have a choice, just make a choice of someone who hasn't done this to somebody. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm going to say on it. Except one more time for you idiots running AutoZone. You are morons. You are absolutely, positively morons. You just took a person that worked for you, that saved the life of one of your other employees, that is a downright hero. And let me tell you why he's a hero. Let me tell you why this man is a hero. Because many times people get labeled as heroes that aren't heroes. They get attacked, they get stuck, they get in a position, they get out of it. They had two choices. Get killed, get hurt, or and they happen to help somebody else while they do it. And there's no way to know if that person really did it heroically or not because they were in a reactionary mode. They were in a survival mode. This guy escaped. He went out the door. He didn't have to get his gun and go back in and risk his life. He had a choice. He had a choice. He could have ran down the road. He could have called 911. He had a choice. The very choice AutoZone would say, well, that's what we fired him for. He made the choice to stand up and not leave his buddy behind, and risk his own life in order to save him. And AutoZone, to save your property, which certainly wasn't worth that. But you know what? I'm sure Mr. McLean, 
I'm sure he doesn't regret his decision because he didn't do it for you jerks anyway. He did it for the man whose life he saved. And you make me sick. And every company that's ever done something like this, you make me sick. And you go on my list of, not I will never do business with you. You will just, you're just the last people. The last people. If I'm stranded in McPherson, Kansas again someday, and I, I need a part for my car, and the only place I can get it is AutoZone, I'll buy it from you. But next week, when I put new brakes on my Jetta, I promise you, I won't be darkening your door. And I don't think I'll ever find myself in a position where you're my only choice. But that's the only way you'll ever see another dime from me. Let's take another one. Um, here's a question from Michael. It's an interesting one. First time I've ever had this one on silver uh, ever. In your opinion, would I be able to use 40% silver coins to barter or trade? If not, would you sell off what you had to acquire 90% silver? I have 700 plus silver half dollar, 40% silver half dollars, and I don't want to mistakenly hold on to them if people won't know their value or consider them valuable. Okay, so let's talk about what this guy's talking about here. For a brief period of time, specifically the Kennedy half dollars, uh, did not go to a copper clad. They went to a copper clad silver so they're 40% silver instead of what modern 50 cent pieces are and you can buy these for their silver monetary value there's a spot price on them and all Michael when it comes to day-to-day -day value of your silver they are going to trade as a commodity with no problem whatsoever so if you're holding them as a hold for holding silver bullion they're just as useful for that as 90% silver, even though they don't have as much of a silver count, because you paid less for them too. So they're going to go up and down in price. They're going to fluctuate with the silver spot price at the same ratio that 90% silver or you know, you know, 99% silver bullion is going to fluctuate, each having a little bit different of a premium. But again, the premium's not important because you paid it on entry into any of those three different types of silver. So from that standpoint, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, would I switch it over to 90% silver? Mm, would I? Um, with the amount of silver that I hold in other forms, no. Um, but I don't really have any of this 40% stuff. Uh, except maybe one here and there that came my way through, you know, people not understanding what it was and leaving it in circulation. Um, I don't buy it. So that tells you my thoughts on it. But if I had a bunch of it, I wouldn't necessarily try to get rid of it um, just so I could change it in value. Um, the only way I might do it is if I had someone that would do a direct exchange barter with me where they would say, you know, X amount of these are worth X amount of those. And we just swapped like trading baseball cards if you get my drift. Not going to a store and buying it, getting cash and repurchasing. Because with sales tax and all, you're going to have a loss to do that. And I don't think it's worth it. From the standpoint of the, the heart of your question, the belief that one day the entire economy will fail, it will be Mad Max, and people will out be out bartering silver dimes for green beans. If that were to happen, you would not want these things. Real quick, what people are going to snap to is 1964 and back. So from a barter standpoint in a breakdown, I don't want these things. As a silver holding, that's a silver holding, is a silver holding, is a silver holding. Period. And I don't foresee a whole lot of this, like, you know, Patriots collapse, uh, coming collapse in, in Rawls's book, 
where there's like these little, you know, flea markets set up and people are running around with their silver dimes and crap like that. And the sheriff's being paid in, you know, five silver dimes a week is this sound. Like, come on. You know, I think that some people spend a little bit too much time reading books and watching TV and watching old, you know, zombie movies. Um, there's certain things that have occurred in our society that have brought humanity to a certain point from which we're not going to recede as far as the way we'll run a society. And they'll all, you know, there's a, a, a collapse, there will be a power vacuum, and something will always fill it. Am I saying you can never end up in a situation where you're bartering silver and gold? Um, absolutely not. One, you might just do it by choice. Two, in, in an economic collapse like they had in Argentina, with a functioning economy and an under-the-table economy going concurrently with each other, it's extremely valuable there. Um, and that would be another reason that you might want to consider switching these over. Because if you're worried, and this is your personal tolerance, right? And to be fair to you, I've never really thought about this deeply because I've never put myself into a position of sitting on 740% silver coins. Um, in that kind of under the background economy, they're probably not going to be as desirable. They're not going to be as desirable. Because one thing about these economies that run this way, these, these shadow economies that run on silver, gold, and other things that people barter with each other, It's not a straight dollar to metal ratio that they work on because if it was, you might as well just take cash. Because you could just take cash and go down and change it into silver or gold. There's a certain desirable component within it. In other words, it, well, there might be a place or a time when people really wanted gold over silver for some certain reason. And if you looked at the price for silver and gold outside of that shadow economy, you actually are getting a discount by paying with gold. And it could swing the other way. If it's a, you know, people are looking for more quantity and silver's more common and easier to make change with, et cetera, it could swing the other way. Um, so I would, if I were buying coins today, I would not buy these things with barter in mind. If I'm holding them, I may continue to hold them, and if I'm going to exchange them, my goal would be to find somebody that doesn't have a hang-up with it and would be happy to maybe exchange them in a direct exchange, if you catch my drift with that. Uh, it'll save you some heartache with economics. I'll leave it at that. Let's take another one. Here's an interesting question. I was wondering if you'd be interested in talking about how your life has changed since you gave up the 9-to-5 normal job How is life better, and maybe what are some things you miss about life before doing TSP full-time? I've been listening to your podcast since you were doing the show Driving and Yelling at Ass Clowns. It was great. Well, I'm sure you've addressed this before, but I'm studying for my law school exams, and I'm taking a shot at hearing something, and I'm taking a shot at hearing something nice. Uh, have a great day, Matt. I'm not sure what he means by that, and hearing something nice, maybe something good. I guess from me or what have you. But anyway, Matt, um, interesting question. Uh, let's start out with the easy answer. What are some things I might miss about my life before I started doing TSP full time? The answer is absolutely nothing. I miss absolutely nothing about being an employee or even a company owner in a corporate situation. Nothing. If there's anything I miss. It's my friendship with my partner, Neil Franklin, which is still a strong friendship, but the day-to-day -day interaction with him and not really at the office, but sitting in a bar together talking about life and martial arts and dogs and, and, and the world and economics and things like that. So that is more a function of geography because, you know, I'm so far away and we're going to move back to that area. So that would be the only thing, and it's not a real thing, 
And I imagine we'll spend a lot more time hanging out together when we don't live five and a half hours apart again. So, because um, I can say the same thing about Brian Black at ITS Tactical, right? He's a great friend. He's like a brother to me. And, um, you know, when I look at that, I, I look at that and think, you know, we never worked together. That was never the basis, you know, other than some loose partnership stuff. You know, so I don't see him very often either. Well, that's because we live five and a half hours apart. So there ain't nothing. In fact, I'm going to confess something to you guys. If some of you guys are going to think I'm crazy or think, oh, that must be a nice problem to have or something like that. But it's just the truth. Every once in a while, I have a dream that I have a job. I have a dream that I have a job of some sort. And it's like a nightmare. There's nothing good in it for me. I wake up and I'm thinking, oh my God, thanks, thank God I don't have to do that anymore. I'm not putting down employment. I'm just telling you that there's other ways to live your life. And if you can build something of your own that gives you freedom and independence, there's no downside. There is absolutely no downside. From a security standpoint, I will never fire myself. From a financial stability standpoint, I don't have a single big client or two big clients. If I lose a customer, I'll get another one tomorrow. Um, could the entire economy crash and, and wipe out a lot of the income that I have here? Sure, but that's true if I was working for a job or anything else. I am much more financially stable than any employed person as far as I'm concerned, including people that think, I've got a really great safe job because I work for the government. Um, if I want to take a vacation, I can shut down for a week. I can do two weeks' worth of work in one week and let the show float through. I mean, I have, you know, I'll tell you that it probably has saved my life. I think I was headed for a heart attack in my 40s with stress from that type of an environment. I wasn't happy. I wasn't a good friend to a lot of people because I was just an unhappy person. I wasn't a great guy for my wife when I would get home. I would need about an hour uh, out in the yard. That's why I was so big into gardening at the time and all. Part of it was just because it was a decompression. I'd go out and do things that didn't really need to be done just to just so that I could go back in and be human for her. Um, and now when I when I get home, if she hasn't come to the office that day, and we're, we're seeing each other since the first time since I left, you know, we greet each other with an embrace immediately, not an hour later. It's not grab a beer and go out and water the tomatoes until I feel like I'm a human being again. Um, I'd say every single piece of my life is better for it. And it's why I'm so passionate. It's why I've, you know, kind of done things here and there with Five Minutes with Jack It's not, I don't want another business unit. I'm not trying to make more money over there. If I wanted to make money selling how to do business stuff, by now I could have probably made more money doing that than I'm ever going to make with TSP. And I could have let this thing just like, I could have done a Gary Vaynerchuk, right? I could have went off in the, that direction and eventually Wine Library TV went away. I could have done that. And I don't want to because this is, see the whole point is, and I think Gary's going to find himself one day realizing this, he loves wine. He's passionate about wine. That's what he really loves. I love preparedness. I love teaching people. I love helping people. I love teaching people to build sustainable lives. So that's where my focus goes. And it's two things that make my life really great because of this. One is I get to do what I love. And two, I get to do it on my terms. Someday I, 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 some days I know I've pissed a couple people off and they decide, you know what, I'm not doing business with you anymore. And, and you know what? That's called capitalism. And I'm totally okay with that. And I would caution anybody building a business to have a diverse customer base, even if you're like a production business or manufacturing business, to not have like one customer that can go away and make you have to lay off half your employees if you're an employee-based business. It's just not the way to be. And I would also caution people from getting too much into the corporate grind with a business. 
I think having the small business with one or two helpers or family members working with you and having a lot of flexibility is the greatest way to live in the world. And it doesn't mean you don't work hard. I probably work harder now than at any other time. I promise you, you know, when I worked for Fluke as a sales manager, I did a lot of work with all other crap they wanted from me, but there was never a time that I was up at two o'clock in the morning working. And sometimes I do that now completely by choice. So the answer is, what do I miss? Nothing. What's better? Everything. And I want as many people that are willing to do the work to have that too. And anybody that has like any animosity towards me for that, and I know some of you have heard from you, must be nice and crap like that. Let me explain something you need to understand. Not about me, but about anybody that's been able to do it. And I'll just use my frame of reference because I was there for me. When I was working 80 hours a week in corporate America and doing everything I do now and more, okay, and I had to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to plan my show for the day so that I could do it during my drive to Frisco, I didn't see any of the people that grumble and grouse about it now getting in my way on my way to go do that. You weren't there, you were in bed. And that's fine, and there's nothing wrong with that. But don't begrudge people who get it done. And the bigger lesson for those people that feel that way, you feel that way because you want it to and you don't think you can have it. You can have it. You absolutely can have it. It won't happen overnight. You do have to work hard for it. You will screw things up. You will not get it right at first. Your first results will be terrible. You'll think they'll be great. And if you can hold on to the enthusiasm long enough, they'll become great. And then you can do it too, no matter what it is. I don't care if it's making knives, making soap, making artwork, teaching a class, beginning self-defense instructor, being a wilderness survival expert, being a YouTuber that does cool stuff that just seems like nonsense, but a lot of people like it. I don't care what it is. If you're good and you perfect your skills and you work hard and you do it, there ain't never been a better time in history to do it. And even with all the gloom and doom I talk about, uh, in, in, the, in the coming economic world, the people doing these things will adapt better to the changes that are coming. So great question. Thanks for letting me talk about it. Let's uh, take a couple more before we wrap up today. Boy, here's a really great one. Um, and it ties into this. And it's going to let me talk about something that's really cool uh, that I just thought of when I reread this uh, this uh, article or this this email that I had already put aside to do today. This came in a couple weeks ago, and I made, made sure I wanted to get to this. It comes from Ben. Ben says, hey, Jack, this is actually a wonderful problem for me. I have access to a gigantic, professional-grade, completely empty greenhouse thanks to the AG teacher at the local high school. What should I do? He's told me that I have free reign over the greenhouse. I can do whatever I want. Of course, since this is a high school, I want to make it educational. I have access to 500-gallon hydroponic system that's not being used, too. Any suggestions on what I can do as classes? I think classes on composting, sustainability of hydroponics, and woody grow beds. I'm tempted to move my goats in there for the winter and teach milking and get free fertilizer for the greenhouse um, as well. Uh, any thoughts on what you do given this opportunity? 
And uh, let me say, first of all, your, all your ideas are great, and you should do all of those. The aquaponic system, you got to get, or, uh, it's a hydroponic system, not an aquaponic system. But you got to get that going as well. There's a lot that people can learn about from there. You might even use that hydroponic system and do a little bit of fodder growing, like we talked about, for those goats. That would be interesting for the, the students to be able to see okay, here's goats, and they need to have food brought into them, but we can at least grow some of their food in this hydroponic system right where they're in the greenhouse. They're providing heat, they're providing manure, and, and they have this symbiotic relationship they can see. That's all great. And there's probably a hundred other things you could teach. Um, you could teach things like uh, grafting and getting trees started or cloning plants with hydroponics, right? So hydro is a great way to clone things like really cool different varieties of pepper plants so that you're planting a pepper plant in spring versus a little tiny pepper seedling, all right? So tons of stuff you can do there. Uh, you might talk about, you know, things that you can, I'm trying to hold back on where I'm going with this, right? Things that you can use that greenhouse for in the winter that become marketable by springtime. All right. And that's where I'm going with this. And I want to tie it in before I even answer the rest of this question with kind of what's got me really thinking this way now. Um, I've become a real big fan of Acres USA magazine ever since Ben Falk uh, told me about it while I was up there for his permaculture workshop this summer. And there's an article in the December edition. I can find the November article by Mark Shepard, and I can't find the December one um, online. Let me, I just actually picked some up here. Let me see if I can find it for you guys real quick, and if not, I'll, I'll, I'll ad-lib it. No, I can't find it. I found a PDF of his article the month before, but the article is an interview called Mimicking Mother Nature, and it's about this 106-acre permaculture farm that Mark has. I think it's in Wisconsin. And this is a guy I've contacted a couple times and never heard back from because I'd love to bring him on as a guest. If you guys know him or anybody out there has a contact uh, with him, I don't just like how to get a hold of him. I know his, you know, I can find him online like anybody else. But if you've actually spoken to him in any way and you have any kind of an insight with him, let him know, Jack. I'd love to have him on the Survival Podcast. But he had a fascinating article that makes me want to have him on even more um, than just the fact that he has done such wonderful things with large-scale permaculture, really done it, really made it happen. And that was, he was talking about how he deals with interns compared to everybody else. And this is going to come right back to the greenhouse. What he said is that the big problem with everybody in the you know organic world that's having these interns come and work for free with wolfing and stuff like that is they're all just looking for free labor. So they want the people to come in, do the work, and go. And these young people coming in that want to farm – Learning the mechanics of farming is not that valuable. And it's not that valuable because you can learn it relatively quickly and they get used as labor and they get used for the stuff nobody wants to do and they can probably learn a lot of what they're learning from that much quicker than doing internships for three or four years for no money or a small stipend. And there is a process to get into farming that exists. So the first thing that you get if you go to intern with Mark Shepard at his farm is a tax form. That form, and I'm not saying to go this deep with your greenhouse, just thinking in this direction. That form is called a 1040 Schedule F. And it is basically how you file taxes as somebody who does farming for a living, who is an agricultural business. And effectively, the intern leases a piece of Mark's farm. So they're, per, they're leasing it. They're leasing the rights to it. And then they pay the lease through labor. So there's this, this transaction going on between the intern and, so it's effectively a farm to farm transaction. So they do that for two years. 
And then they can go down to the bank and say, I'd like a loan to purchase agricultural land for farming. And they said, do you have any experience in track record farming? And they pull out two years of tax returns, two Schedule Fs consecutive year to year that shows income and, and activity, etc. And they have a track record. And now they can get financing and actually purchase land and they know what to do with it to make it profitable fast. And to make it profitable long enough to get it into perennial production with permaculture. And I thought... Genius. Because yes, working for yourself is better than working for somebody else. Back to the prior question. So, with this greenhouse, what would I add to this, Ben? I would add to this, let's teach these children to develop a market for what's being grown. Let's teach them how to brand a blueberry plant. It's locally cultivated and, and, and locally adapted. Or let's teach them how they can go out and get rootstock since they're not producing it themselves already and graft trees and bring them to bud in this controlled environment, have them look beautiful at springtime and how they can be sold for a profit. Let's teach these kids how maybe something that's not even a food thing but has a high marketability is easy to cultivate in large numbers and then be sold off to people who want it for decorative purposes. Let's teach these kids at these schools not just how to grow food. That's the easy part. Let's teach them how to do it from a standpoint where they can be profitable Instead of having a belief that the only way to be a farmer is to resign yourself to making three to six thousand dollars a year on corn per acre, if that. That's what I would do. I would turn the whole thing into not just a way to provide children with an education on how to grow and cultivate things and what a greenhouse is and how it works and what permaculture is and how it works and why it makes more sense to grow something that comes back every year on its own than something I have to dig up and plant again every year. The role that animals play in that and how there's a symbol. I wouldn't teach them all of that, but teach them how to turn that into a business. And instead of just a kid that's going to have a garden in his backyard, you're creating a liberated person who writes their own rules in life. Some of these kids will grow up to be farmers anyway in a rural area. But farmers pretty much live impoverished lives today. And there's no reason for it. None at all. Farming can be highly profitable because you have a product that everybody wants and everybody needs. One of the few things in the world that is a want and need based product. And I believe that the way you become profitable is you sell what people want, not what they need. There's too much competition in the needs market. It's a commodity market. Food is the one place where I can take what you need, a steak, and sell it to you for more because it's grass-fed and locally grown. And really do that over and over and over again. So whatever you can do to bring the concepts of entrepreneurship, farming for a living, founding, and it doesn't just have to be a farm business or a food business. What else fits in there? Compost is its own product. Okay? If compost is its own product, fertility, right? There's all types of businesses that are sustainable that can come out of these types of workshops and turn the kids' minds on and say to them, what would you do? What can you come up with that no one's ever done before? 
I mean, that's a great idea. Uh, that's what I would do. I would make it more than just the mechanics of growing. I would make the why. It's not just because it's a better way to live. It's not just because it's healthier. It's because there's a demand for things like this. And if out of that group of kids over a couple of years of doing this, you get just one that becomes a Mark Shepard, you know, he might be the name that's known, but the contribution you will have made to society by creating just one more person like that will be huge. And it makes me think of my, the commander that I had for a very short period of time in the military, that when he left, he told us in front of a formation that when you die, they're going to bury you. And in between the year you were born and the year you died, there'll be a dash, and that dash is you. Do something with it. That would be one damn good thing to have contained in your dash, buddy. I think that's a great opportunity, and it's how I would give it the X factor. It's how I would take it beyond just another place where kids can go learn to do this stuff. Make them realize there's a future in doing the right things for the right reasons. And not all of them are going to embrace it. Many of them will enjoy it, and they'll go off and do something else. One or two. One or two is worth the effort. Let's take one more, and we'll wrap up for today. Let's end with um, a future-looking uh, article that came out on Bloomberg today that's directly from U.S. intelligence agencies. And it's called U.S. Intelligence Agencies See a Different World by 2030. Those of you that think 2030 sounds like a long way away, understand two things. One, it ain't that far away. As those of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s can tell you, it seemed like 2010 was Buck Rogers' future, and we're here now, and I don't see Buck anywhere. Um, so it's not that far away. Number two, the things that you look at happening by 3030 will be occurring all around you all the way to there. And this comes from Adam. Adam, thanks for sending me this article this morning. U.S. intelligence agencies see a different world by 2030 on Bloomberg. New technologies, dwindling resources, and explosive population growth in the next 18 years will alter the global balance of power and trigger radical economic and political changes at speed unprecedented in modern history, says a new report by the U.S. intelligence community. 140-page report released today by the National Intelligence Council lays out dangers and opportunities for nations, economies, investors, political systems, and leaders due to four megatrends the government intelligence analysis are say are transforming the world. These megatrends are the end of U.S. global dominance, the rising power of individuals against states, the rising middle class whose demands challenge governments, a Gordian knot of water, food, energy shortages, according to the analysts. We're at a critical juncture in human history, which could lead to a widely contrasting future. Councilman Chair Christopher Kajorm writes in the report, Leading the list of game-changers factors the report say will shape the impact of megatrends is the crisis-prone global economy. Well, I got that one right, because it ain't the U.S. economy that's screwed, folks. It's the global economy, and it really is, which is vulnerable to international shocks and to disparities among national economic uh, economics economies moving at significantly different speeds. In other words, some economies are moving fast and some are moving slow. Some are moving fast toward implosion, and some are moving slowly toward implosion. They don't say that, but that's what it really means. The future is malleable, Kajorm, uh, according to Kajorm. 
Quote, our greatest effort is to encourage decision makers, whether in government or outside, to think and plan for the long term so that the negative futures do not occur and positive ones have a better chance of unfolding, end quote. And there's a whole bunch more you can read in the article yourself. But let me tell you what the real output of this is. That by 2030, there will be no global superpower anymore. There'll be no single nation that stands apart from everybody else that's completely dominant across the globe. And everybody will be in a more equal footing. And the most dominant nations will be a group of equals. That the U.S. will have some type of, you know, nostalgic leadership because of our hard and soft power in the world. And we'll still be kind of at the front of the U.N. committees and all, but we won't really have the authority to assert that. They'll just be benevolent and leave us there because it's tradition. What? That, that's the upshot of this if you read deeper into the whole report and everything. So we're going to be separate but equal. Uh, this is a this is a nice way to soft sell you on the concept of global government. That's what this really is. That we'll have this nice little consortium and we'll all get along. And I'm not saying the U.S. needs to stay the world superpower. Right? I think we've we've kind of played that pill for quite a long time. But here's the reality: it ain't going to happen, and and the powers that be know it. This nation was able to maintain its dominance for a variety of reasons. One, we own the global reserve currency in the dollar. That ain't going to last forever because sooner or later the dollar is on a road to implosion and rebasement. So that goes away. We have technological advantage that made us so dominant militarily against every other nation in the world that they quaked in fear when they heard our name. Um, these technologies are being developed rapidly in many other countries and we're we're also at a point now where just thumping somebody with a missile every time you want to ain't quite as available to us anymore. And we have some other anti-hegemonic nations that are basically saying, you know, you guys don't need to be doing that anymore. And we don't want to fight with them. People like China and Russia, for instance. I'm not saying we're good, they're bad, or they're good and we're bad. I'm just saying that's the reality. But the, the, the fundamental reality is this. We've lived in a bubble for a hundred years, a bubble of cheap money and a bubble of technological advantage over every nation in the world. And a big part of what saved our ass is not just that in World War II and World War I we had great generations of men that went out and fought for liberty in the world, but we were insulated from the rest of the world by these two great big dadgone oceans. And unlike Europe and Russia, Asia on both sides... We didn't have our cities bombed to the ground. We were protected by a geographic restriction that's no longer valid. It's not that hard to get something that will blow you up across the ocean anymore. So that bubble has been in a deflationary, popping, long-term popping mode since the 1950s and since technology has began to expand and since the global economy has been beginning to grow, etc. And with the advent of things like internet-based communications, people talking to each other across all global boundaries and realizing that what one government says about the other government's people ain't necessarily true, that's gone into hyperdrive. And then we've abused a system of print-on-demand money and we're finally going to have to pay the bill for it. And all of these other nations out there have decided they'd like to have some of the nice stuff that we do too. Their people are saying, why should we live in dirt? 
Why should we live in squalor? Why can't we have a middle-class lifestyle too? And are they wrong to ask for it? And the entire concept of this one nation with as many great things as we have going for us, and we do, and we'll always be a world leader because we're always going to have an incredible, incredible reservoir of resources. Very few nations have the amount of resources that we do. Agricultural land, and the hell with the peak oil thing. Watch what happens to oil and gas production in this country in the next 10 years. I'm telling you, that peak is a lot longer off than anybody wants to admit. Right? Coal, timberlands, the navigable uh, oceanways. I mean, this nation has so much part of what made it great. It wasn't just that we're personally exceptional people. Because that's a, that's a myth and it's a lie, and we need to stop telling our little teacup children that they're special just because they're an American. Because we all got here from somewhere else. Even the Native Americans got here from somewhere else. They walked here or came here in boats. All right. What we had exceptional in this country is is an exceptional concept for a system of government that's never actually been run the way it's been in, it was intended to be run ever. Because no, there was no point where everybody was equal and the government was running the way it was supposed to. But we still had it better. We did it better than most. And we had all of these resources. We had all this technological advantage. And we had an isolationism by a couple oceans that protected us from some of the most damaging wars that ever been raged in the history of humankind. And that whole little perfect bubble greenhouse that we've existed in is coming to an end, folks. It's coming to an end. And that doesn't mean it's the end of the world as we know it. And, you know, it'll be a fun thing to watch the new Red Dawn movie. But the freaking North Koreans are not going to invade America. Okay? That's just dumb. They can't even get a rocket off of their own peninsula without it falling in the freaking ocean. All right? The North Koreans aren't going to invade. The whole world isn't going to fall completely apart. But there is going to be a massive shift. And that's why building a sustainable lifestyle in a way that makes sense that helps you live better if time gets tough or even if they don't. That's why I've been doing this for all the years I've been doing it. We want to prepare for the acute disaster, but you better prepare for a global shift like something that you can't even conceive of. I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen. None of us know. This is an interesting report to read. Make it motivational for you why you do the things that you're doing, why you're living a life that other people look at sometimes and don't understand, and a life that just works better. It works better right now. It'll work better during an uncertain future. And if things get bad, it'll work better. And if things get better, it'll work better. The way we do things here just makes sense. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.